When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This is the Product Couple Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, Doug Stewart returns to talk about his new book, The Traditional Side-by-Side Part 2. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 149. Project Upland Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Eucanibus Sporting Dog, CZ USA, Garmin, Sage and Breaker, and Dakota 283. All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. Got a great episode for you today, especially for those of you that enjoy shooting side-by-side shotguns, but fear not, we mix in plenty of shotgun-related conversation that will apply to you no matter which type of gun you carry into the field this fall. Before we jump into our conversation today, I've got a couple quick updates for you. Don't want to leave anybody hanging. I've talked to a whole bunch of people in the last couple of weeks, but of course, many more of you listen to this show than I can keep up with on a regular basis. And I mentioned it last week, my wife and I were waiting for baby boy. Well, baby boy, Jack, has arrived safely, happily, and healthy. My family has grown by one, and my wife and I could not be more excited, grateful, and proud. We are all home, happy, and healthy, and we're doing very well. To everybody that reached out and those of you that I talked to, thank you very much. I appreciate all of you sharing in the excitement of our family, and I certainly hope to reciprocate those feelings right back to all of you and yours. 
All right, it's September 10 today. I haven't hunted yet. I'm really itching to get out there. I've been running the dogs. We've still been finding some grouse here and there, but I'm getting geared up. We've got a trip planned next week. I'm heading west to chase sharp tails. That will be my first hunt of the season. Got today's episode for you, and we got one more episode next week. I spoke with Ann Jandernaw last week. We have continued our tradition to do our little preseason grouse episode for the fifth year in a row. That episode will be coming to you next week around perhaps on the Michigan opener, the 15th. If not then, it will be within a day or two and certainly before next weekend when Minnesota and Wisconsin join in the fun, all you Michiganders. So we'll check in with you again next week before grouse season. Until then, I'll just be here twiddling my thumbs, packing my gear, and waiting for my first hunt next week. Oh, and spend a whole bunch of time with my family, which I'm really very much enjoying right now. Actually got a bunch more entries for the Garmin Zero S1 Trap Shooting Trainer. Remember, we're giving that thing away in the next couple of weeks. Before the month end, for sure, we're going to give away that Garmin Zero S1 Trap Shooting Trainer to a youth shooting group or organization. People have continued to submit their applications or entries. We're kind of kind of doing this one by the seat of our pants, but... The only goal is to make sure that this Garmin Zero S1 goes to a youth shooting organization. And if you would like to submit one for consideration, all you have to do is send me an email. Send me a direct message on Instagram or any of the other ways you can get a hold of me. You can email me still at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com for now. Tell me a little bit about the group, who it's for, and we will get that entry submitted for consideration. We will announce that in the coming weeks. Oh, and speaking of Garmin, I almost forgot. On September 1st, I haven't talked to you guys since then, Garmin released the Alpha 10. This is a new handheld unit in the lineup that did not exist before. There's a bunch of information on it. For all questions and specifics on the Alpha 10, I encourage you to go to Garmin.com. Look this up. I'll throw a link in the show notes. But I've got one of these actually in my hand right now. This is a much smaller, more scaled down version of the Alpha 200. It's very 200-esque in its design, but it's a whole heck of a lot smaller. It's also more economical, serves a different purpose, fits a different role. If you are interested in getting into the Alpha lineup, you want some GPS tracking capabilities, but you're looking to save a few bucks or you just don't need all the bells and whistles of the 200, Alpha 10 could be the right mix for you. Garmin has done something quite interesting in that. I mean, they continue to evolve the line in that you got the Pro 550 Plus, which is super training heavy collar with GPS capability. You got the Alpha 200, which is the GPS navigational workhorse, can do everything. You know, it can do all the navigational abilities. You could ask for fully functional training setup for 20 dogs, track them nine miles away, and you could even send an SOS or send a text to your wife with the inReach technology. And now they're starting to sprinkle in some more units within that lineup and ultimately cater to more customers, people that value one thing more than another, don't need to spend money on features that won't be of value to them. And the Alpha 10 does that. The Alpha 10 is a unit that is going to give you, it's going to give you enough GPS tracking capability with your dogs to keep you hunting safely and comfortably in the field. What I love about it is the ability to expand what the Alpha 10 can do for you using 
the Garmin Explore app. So taking advantage of the power of the smartphone that most of us already have. So that's a big feature there. You can get real-time mapping and activity tracking and hunt replays and stuff on the Garmin Explore app, something I'm going to be experimenting with a little bit more this season, something I'm pretty excited about. That you can use with the Alpha 10. It's also going to sync up to your Garmin watches, your Instinct, your Phoenix, give you access to that, which is one of my favorite features. The Alpha, it's not the reason I bought the, well, when I bought the Alpha 100, Back in 2014, the watches didn't exist, but I remember when the watches came out, I was intrigued by the idea, but I didn't realize just how much, how convenient it would actually be and how much I would rely on. I really love the fact that the watch can sync up to these handheld units and I don't have to do a lot of training in the field of my dogs. I find that I'm very often just strapping my Alpha 200 to my bird vest and flipping the dog tracker on my watch and there's a lot of hunts where you know, I'm not trash breaking, my dogs aren't getting in anything, and I'm running quiet, and they're checking in, and I'd never even touch my alpha until I get back to the truck, and I just look at my watch to find out where they are when I'm when the dogs are on point. So, again, I could go on, but there's a lot of information out there on the Garmin Alpha 10. Uh, if you've been looking at the lineup, you've been kind of struggling with what to do. I talked to a handful of people over the last couple of weeks about the Alpha 10, kind of helping them through their decision-making process and trying to figure out if it's right for them. Uh, if you got questions about it, feel free to ask me. But again, there's a lot of good resources out there. And I'm sure Steve Snell over on Gundog Supply has probably got a video out on it. Uh, yeah, go check it out. New option for you, Garmin users or prospective users, the Alpha 10. That's all I got for you this week. I could ramble on about some other stuff, but... I don't know. I've got mapping to do, dropping some pins in Onyx, preparing for my Western trip, and looking at grouse covers. We're going to talk a lot more about that in next week's episode. So I think I'll save all that for next week. And we're going to jump into our conversation today. Doug Stewart is a former guest of the podcast. We had him on in August of 2018 when he wrote his first book, The Traditional Side-by-Side which I read at the time and interviewed Doug and we talked all about side-by-side guns, his favorite guns. And I have become no less interested in side-by-sides since that time. In fact, I'm even more smitten with them today. Got a new one earlier this week too. Pretty excited about it. I'll share more about that in the future, but I should probably go shoot it first. So anyways, Doug wrote part two. He wasn't planning on it, but he did. I got my hand at a copy Gave it a read through and Doug and I connected earlier this week and talked about his book, talked about what he's been up to, some of his hunts and got a lot of his opinions and thoughts on side-by-sides, but really shotguns and shooting. And we talked ammo and payloads and all kinds of stuff. And if you enjoy Doug and I's conversation today and are interested in what he has to say a little bit more in-depth and detail, go check out his books. I got links in the show notes to his website. You can buy them on Amazon. You can also buy them from him directly. He'll inscribe it for you. Tell him you heard about it on the podcast. He'll do that for you. He, he explains that during our conversation today. So check that out. And if nothing else, hope you enjoy our conversation and take a little something away as it relates to your shotguns and shooting this fall. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. With that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the podcast, Doug Stewart. And I'm going to welcome Doug Stewart back to the podcast for the second time. Doug, I looked it up this afternoon. It was August 20th, 2018, three years ago, roughly, 
that I published the episode, so we would have talked not too long before that. But thanks for coming back, man. How are you? Hey, I'm great, and uh, it's been too long. Yeah, yeah, it has, but I'm glad that when I, I heard from Doug Stewart after after a long time, it was for the announcement of a new book that you wrote, which we're going to talk about plenty today. Great. So I got to ask, Doug, since we were trying to schedule this thing over the last seven to ten days or so, you mentioned that you maybe got to go out and do a little hunting last weekend. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, me and my wife went up to Wyoming, and we hunted dove and a little bit of uh, sharp-tailed grouse. Excellent. And how did that go? Oh, it went great. Um, we made it a family thing. We took our daughter with us, and we stayed in a little farmhouse. Um, we shot a lot of doves. We didn't have too much success for the sharp-tail. We uh, missed a couple of great shots. The bird dogs are fine. I'm mean, just a little bit hot out, so we couldn't okay. uh, run them very long, you know. Yeah, kind of typical early season weather. Oh, yeah. How old's your daughter, Doug? So she's 14. Okay. So she went along with us and uh, helped out with the bird dogs. And, you know, we just have a good time when we go out there. We let her drive the vehicle a little bit on some of the dirt roads and stuff you don't get to do in the city you know sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's funny it reminds me of the the first it may have been the first time i drove a truck if if it wasn't the first it was one of the first i was we were going up for minnesota fishing opener and i went up early with my uncle and not only was it my first time driving a car but he had a little stick shift tacoma and we were way in the backwoods in this lake and we set up the campsite and my uncle and I, he's like, you want to learn how to drive a truck? And I said, sure. You know, I was probably 13 or 14, something like that and hopped in and I don't know how he did it, but he, he had me moving the truck forward down the road. <laughs> I figured out something <laughs> and we were going to drive out to this meeting spot where we we're going to meet my dad. And I remember coming around the corner on this little forest road and just about smacked right into my dad coming around the corner the other way. And I think he was, I don't know if he was more surprised by the truck or to see me in the driver's seat, but <laughs> that was my first time driving. Well, people never forget their first time, yeah. so that's huge. <laughs> well, is your daughter uh, shooting shotguns yet, Doug? Yeah, she shoots them, and, but she doesn't want to kill anything, so she's not shooting game birds yet. Okay. But she loves the bird dogs and... She's really into the outdoors and loves riding horses, and, and I'm okay with that, you know. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, as as you know, I uh, am, and the and the listeners will have likely found out by now. The I just welcomed my second son into the world, my wife and I, last week, and we are of course very excited about that. And I'm I'm a little bit tired this evening, so that's playing into it. And it was my my anniversary yesterday, so I got whole lot of stuff to be excited about doug and i appreciate you being flexible with my schedule well congratulations and you've got two young men that you get to introduce to side by sides in the uplands here in the future so this is a big deal yeah that's that's for sure i'm certainly excited about many many good times ahead and i uh couldn't be more blessed and and happy to be where i'm at right now and we've got a good little family here doug and you know the importance of that it's it's a big deal oh well, good. God bless you, and uh, I'm sure you're very excited. You should be. Yeah. Well, Doug, since we last spoke three years ago, which was right around the time of the release of the traditional side-by-side King of the Upland Bird Guns Part 1, it is three years 
past. What have you been up to, man? Just been kind of shooting guns, working and hunting. Anything else crazy going on in your life other than writing this new book? Well, not really. I mean, the book was supposed to be out a lot sooner. Okay. I already had it written, but the COVID stuff put it on hold. Yeah. Um, and you know how that goes. But same thing. I'm still collecting my guns and, and bird hunting. And, and me and my wife are both, you know, personal trainers and nutritionists. And that's what we do for a living. Yeah. Um, so we kind of went through a hard time with gyms closed down. and Sure, yeah. That has been rough. That, but, yeah, but we're back full steam and everything's going great and uh we're gonna have a very busy hunting season this year um uh, to make up for it kind of you know yeah are there some hunts you're most looking forward to you're going to be getting out in colorado quite a bit well i love them all i do i go to eastern colorado and do a little bit of pheasant but we're going to be going to nebraska for pheasant and quail i'm going to be going to michigan for woodcock and grouse and um, i'm going to wyoming again here for you know, Huns and Chucker here when it opens up in the middle of the month. Okay. So, yeah, we're going to be busy hunting. I, I like a variety. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it is, it's a very exciting time of year uh, for guys like you and I. And there's definitely, there's a it's kind of an escalating reverberation across the Upland community. Lots of people are hunting out west, and we've got seasons kicking off for the Great Lakes rough grouse pretty soon and you know after that it's just kind of one big snowball and everybody's out in the uplands following their bird dogs and chasing birds and carrying guns which is a good good time of year uh, it's very exciting I, it's the best for us yep no doubt well doug i've got some notes here on the book i want to i want to walk through that there's some very very interesting sort of topics of conversation that won't probably won't be totally unfamiliar to the listeners but we're going to hash some of that stuff out but i i just like to kind of recap a little bit on when you wrote the first book the traditional side by side part one what was your inspiration to write that book obviously you love side by sides and we talked about, about all that the first time but what made you want to write the book doug i think because um i have a passion for them i've dealt with them my whole life and i just i see them starting to fade away and I didn't want them to because I'm very nostalgic. Yeah. And just a lot of books weren't coming out. I mean, yes, you know, Michael McIntosh and many others used to write about them, but not so much now. So I wanted to bring it back. And, you know, I get bored just being a trainer. And I, I, I like to do something else that uh, I have a passion for. Sure. And uh, I had a lot of people encourage me, you know, a lot of different gunsmiths and stuff that said, man, you're really, you know your stuff. And you're a side-by-side guru, you know, maybe you should consider writing a book. And uh, I got a notebook paper, started screwing around, and uh, it kind of came together. Yeah. And what was what was the response and the feedback like after the first book? Because that kind of plays into, like, in the foreword to part two, you, you wrote that, you know, you really had no intentions of writing a part two, but really the the response from the community afterwards kind of led you into it oh i was shocked i mean we sold way more books than i thought people were writing me and said you can't quit writing you know we like your sense of humor we like your stories <laughs> we, we like your passion um we want to hear more about them and they started asking about hammer guns and english guns and you know there's just so much more that can be discussed on the topic yeah 
And so I thought, hey, there's enough to get a little bit more in depth on some different things and write part two. Yeah, so so the goal of part two was really to kind of c- cover, turn over some new stones, cover some things you didn't go as deep on in in the first book. Anything else? Really, that was about it. And I wanted to make it to where when somebody got part one and two, they pretty much knew everything they needed to know about side by side. You would have to get, I can't even tell you how many books I got here at, at the house to cover the information I have on my two books. Um, and a lot of it you can't even find now, and you got to do tons of research. So I just wanted to compile it all in these two books. Yeah. What, what it took me decades to learn, you know. Yep. Yep. I'm, I'm on that little bit of that journey myself. I know. I mean, as you can imagine, when I first talked to you in 2018, that was, I probably owned my sterling worth at that time, but really I was, you know, I was pretty green and I still am if I'm being completely honest, but I've learned a lot in the last three years because I've continued to pursue knowledge and, and talk to people like you about guns. And, and, you know, I, I feel like I can sort of look back at both of these books now like with what I've learned and synthesized from a whole bunch of different resources and, and sort of affirm that, yeah, they're a, it's a very good conceptual and there's a lot of technical stuff in here. Like you've got a lot of charts as far as chokes and shot sizes and payloads. And there's a lot of stuff, particularly in this part two book that, you know, if somebody was looking to dip their toe in and, and, and get started on the right foot, you know, this, this set of books would be a valuable resource to them, no doubt. And, you know, that was the plan, and um, and I just, it's something I enjoy, so I guess I kind of didn't want the saga to end yet, sure, you know? Sure, sure, yeah, yeah, keep pouring your heart and soul into something <laughs> like this, and yeah, you know, if it's a, but it's a side project, but man, I, I think that's kind of like, it's no different than this podcast, like, the opportunities that people have to sort of, you know, self-publish in a way, and like, and actually do something and actually get it out to an audience. I think, you know, I think we're all better for that because there's just a lot of neat stuff that can sort of make its way to the surface where that wasn't always the case. And and to be honest with you, uh, the people I've met from it, it's just, it's worth it. I've met some amazing people. It seems to be like side by side enthusiasts really seem to be a different breed of gentlemen. They seem to be very passionate, very traditional. They really love bird dogs. They love the uplands. And they're just, you know, good, honest people that love God and country and family. And that's what I wanted to weave into this book was how important family was and how we love bird dogs and what this tradition used to be when you take your son out hunting. And um, me and my wife go, and it's very good for our relationship. And we've got a free country, and uh, we're, we don't know how lucky we are to have this public land to be able to grab your dogs and guns and go hunt the uplands like they did, you know, 100 years ago. So why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Michael McIntosh, and I think you may have mentioned it in the book. Uh, you knew him, or he was a friend of yours. Is that correct? Yes, I knew him, and he one of his favorite hunting places was very close to mine up in minnesota okay and that was his favorite place you know to hunt rough grouse and i still think myself it's one of the best in the nation and you know before i had a chance to meet him i just had read all of his books and i really learned a lot from him and i agreed with a lot of his things so he's kind of a mentor when i was younger and i liked his style of writing i really did yeah um and i got my own 
but I know he influenced me definitely. Yeah, I've I've read a couple of his books, only two of them, and I've got a few more on the shelf, kind of waiting to to get into. But I brought that up because I I within the last year I read his book Shotguns and Shooting, which was you know the first in a series of perhaps two or three. Uh huh. I think they're kind of a collection. You may know this better than I, but I think they're sort of a collection of his maybe his essays or magazine articles. But similar to what I was getting at with with your books, you know, for somebody that if you if you're looking for a really sort of foundational knowledge base of shotguns and shooting, particularly as it pertains to bird hunting, um, and and Michael McIntosh certainly leaned heavily towards the side by side, but he he covers both. He t- he talks about over-unders and side-by-sides and and all guns really but very very good foundational knowledge base in shotguns and shooting and he goes over a lot of stuff like you know single trigger versus double trigger and different different grip types and just sort of like all these sort of perpetual debates that you see you might see on facebook or something he sort of addresses all those you know long before there was ever a facebook but only to say that these debates have been going on for a long time and i often find myself agreeing with Macintosh as well. And I don't know if that's just because, you know, his, I think his influence is so ingrained in the gun community that I've probably heard his opinions and thoughts like regurgitated by so many people to me that I just sort of <laughs> tend to agree with them all now. Well, he was very um, intelligent and he had a lot of schooling. Yeah. And very, very smart gentleman. And a lot of it comes off in his writing. And um, so a lot of his stuff was factual and not just an opinion, especially when he'd go over ballistics and stuff, of course. Right, right. And that I respected. I learned a lot from. And, of course, we all have different opinions on the stuff that's not factual, which is great. I mean, that's why we write our individual books, right? Yeah. Um, What I did different than Michael, though, is he would get very in-depth. Like when you read – um, some of his books when he'd go over the different makes of guns and um, when he'd even talk about Parker and his best guns. He would give the complete history of them. Um, when they were made, talk all about Mr. Parker and how the, oh, they made all these different things. And I didn't go that in depth because I got kind of bored with it and I don't want to learn the complete history of everything to every detail. Instead, I just gave my experience with the, per- the gun personally. What I liked about them, how they seemed to handle, what broke and didn't break on them, you know, my opinion after owning tons and tons of them. Yeah. So that's how I vary a little different. I don't get as much into the history and detail, just more practical use. Yeah, you're right. I I, I actually, I take that back. I, I read Shotguns and Shooting. I did read Best Guns. And that's like, like you said, that's like really a, it's like a historical recounting of a lot of the famous gun makers from, yep. you know, and the, and it's the, the American guns are in there. The, the European continental guns are in there for, for somebody that's interested in that. I mean, it's probably the resource. It's certainly the, the one, the best one that I've come across for like a historical account of certain gun makers and kind of, and a lot of gun making history for sure. But in the shotguns and shooting, that's a much more not as in depth. And I feel like that's the one you kind of breeze through it because every chapter is just so dang interesting. Like as it pertains to the history of gun making and, and why, you know, why double guns function the way that they do. Right. And that's how I wanted my book because I wanted it to be interesting. And that's why I'd even have fun little stories and stuff that were making a point to the subject. 
to where people could relate to it and, um, you know, so they'd stay interested in it, not get bored with it and, and could relate it to their own personal experience yeah. with what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, all right. I want to jump into the book here a little bit, Doug. And if I may, there's a section on page eight. I've got the book here in front of me, uh, which, which comes right after you, you open the book with a, with a hunting story about Montana. And I, I recall just kind of like sort of losing myself in a little daydream as you talked about sitting sitting in your chair and sort of watching the sunrise and drinking coffee and just sort of I've been in places like that and I I immediately wanted to wanted to be in a place like that but then you jump into the guns and this is sort of I, I will say that that in this book you know I appreciate the fact that you know you're you're not shy about saying you know these are your opinions these are your preferences and you know, you, you've got a good sense of humor about it a number of times in the book. And you realize that, you know, everybody sort of has their own idea of what a shotgun is and should be. And this is just, this is the way how you feel about them. And, you know, fortunately for you, a lot of people feel the same way about them. Yeah. But anyways, on page eight in the side-by-side, there's, there's some things in here that, I mean, they resonate to me. It's almost like it's like a bit of confirmation bias just because I like it, but I, I'm going to read this a little bit. A side-by-side is designed to be shot in a swinging mount and fire technique. Side-by-sides are faster and have a lower moment of inertia. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. What that means is it doesn't take as much energy to change directions with the gun, to get the gun moving. It takes less energy and less time. So the gun's quicker, more manageable, and that's one of the advantages of a side-by-side. You can shoot it overhead, side-to-side, any position quicker. It has a lower moment of inertia, okay? Yep. Now, side-by-sides, there's many reasons, but in general, they're lighter. Um, The receiver's not as tall, obviously, so your eyes are very close to your hands. Your hands are in the same plane, and this connects you more with your eyes as they're moving your hands. And they feel a little bit, in general, more responsive and whippy than other designs of shotguns, even if they weigh the same. Now, like an over-and-under, they feel more like a rifle. You can be very precise with them. They feel a little bit more steady. And I can even shoot one more consistent, probably pre-mounted, on clay pigeons. Yep. But when you're carrying it down at your waist and you need to shoot fast and you need it to come up naturally and you need to keep your eyes focused on the bird, through my experience, nothing does it better than a properly fitted side-by-side. Excellent. And, and this paragraph goes on to, to really sort of address a lot of those things that you just said. It's, this allows the shooter to mount the gun faster, to change directions quicker and easier, and to be able to focus on the bird. A side-by-side is balanced to naturally work with your reflexes. All shotguns have a single sighting plane. This, that's something that you hear. You hear that a lot where... Yeah, it, it's, it's an old myth. It's baloney. Yeah. And you know who I think started it is, I think, in the campaigns for brownings. Oh, really? Yep, and they said they had a single sighting plane, and every gun has one sighting plane, so right. it's pretty funny. Yeah, but but it sold, and it sold, and it stuck. Yep. But really, instead, it's got a narrower sighting plane, and it sticks up above the barrels. Yes. So all you see is that rib, and in your peripheral vision, you can't see the barrels. Yep. That you, you and know you're, you're talking about an over under. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
and you know, or an automatic, whatever, you know, right. A, a single barrel. Yeah. With a raised rib. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. interesting. And, and the, I guess it's just part of the, part of the shtick with shotguns, but there is so much, like there's so much history and culture with shotguns. There, there's a lot of that. I don't know if misinformation is the right way to put it, but it's just a lot to weed through, you know? And if you're coming at this stuff cold, like, you know, like I was, you're you're going to go through a lot and you're going to hear a lot of things that you're going to later find that, you know, you're going to comprehend them in a different way. And there's just lots of different perspectives and opinions, but I've come to sort of appreciate all of them as I've developed my own personal tastes and that's all they are. You know, it's just my, what I, what I personally like and aesthetically and functionally. And we all have that, have that opportunity. The shallow receiver puts the hands close to the same plane as our eyes, which can really help us to quickly adapt to any flight pattern of the bird. That one, certainly, I, I love the way that sounds with, with the hands being closer to the eye plane, and it really ties into instinctive wing shooting. And, and you know, I think it's clear, obviously, that this is really written from the perspective of upland bird hunting. You know, you're not, this paragraph isn't written about what is the best clay buster or anything like that, but correct. And then you sort of wrap up a, a narrow sighting plane of the over under is most precise against a clear background, such as when shooting clays, the broad sighting plane of a side by side is much easier to see with a background of brush brush, such as when hunting woodcock and grouse. So that's sort of the, uh, opening salvo. And if you, if you like reading that, you're, you're probably definitely going to love this book. Oh, I like that. And it, it does. It's a big nutshell of what the guns are about. Yeah. And people got to remember, they made the over and under first. And the English preferred the side-by-side, -side, and it became Vogue, and they chose it as their mainstay back in the golden era of gunning. Right. <clears throat> and some of the best shots in the world used a side-by-side. I mean, nobody can argue the records of Lord Ripon, you know. But once again, um, upland bird hunting is all that I claim in my book. Yeah which is shooting the gun from a carry position in a, you know, in a swinging mountain fire rhythm. And I'm not claiming it for sitting there in a goose pit shooting geese or anything like that. Yeah. And you've shot enough upland birds that you know that you need to focus on the birds and not be thinking about anything else. Yeah. And you really want to shoot them subconsciously. It's fast. It's precise. Once you put a conscious effort into it, you're thinking, aiming, you're trying to pinpoint this and that. That takes time, and you'll shoot behind them. Yeah. Any sport, you want to do it subconsciously. Correct, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an athletic movement for sure. And we've, we've had some good, good discussions about instinctive wing shooting on this podcast. I'd say we're a little bit overdue for one. Um, we'll, we'll probably work some of that in here. But I know like it's never more clear to me than when I go up to our local sporting clays range here in Duluth, the Old Vermilion it's a great, great shooting club, and uh, Bert is he—he he runs a really good operation up there. But he—he's uh, famous for deception and you know using the terrain and the topography to mess with you. And you know, anytime he's got one where it's a long—you know, let's say it's a long incomer—and you have all that time to think about it. I mean, <laughs> like I, those are the ones that I'm going to miss, you know, every single time. Yep, I just did that dove hunting. When I was in Wyoming, I'd have birds coming in. I could see them coming. And I had to tell myself, don't mount your gun. Yeah. Don't take your safety off. Don't do a thing. 
until it's right in their range and you are ready to fire in a split second. And then I'd swing on it and bang, nail it. Yeah. But if, but if I rode the bird out a little bit, put my gut up a little too soon, you're going to miss. Yeah. And it's it's so I I find it so hard to wait on those targets because it, you know it's it's pitted right up against the polar opposite of that of like the intensity of trying frantically trying to get your gun on a flushing rough grouse that you can hardly see to begin with you know it's like there's those are just two completely opposite things. Oh yeah, absolutely, I agree. So I want to move into a couple of the a couple of the topics. We're definitely we we don't have time to cover everything that's in the book, and and you know folks can we definitely want them to jump in there and and learn a lot of this stuff from them for themselves. But uh, there's a couple key things that I want to pull out that I think will pertain to our audience in general. This time of year, we're all thinking bird hunting. No matter what kind of shotgun you have, there's some really really quality information in here about uh, patterning your gun, chokes shot size, payload, and we're going to cover some of that stuff right now. I want to start with the three types of patterning because this is something you talk about in here, and I'll just kind of have you sort of give us an overview of the three types of patterning that you do with your guns, Doug. And this is, many of us are guilty, myself included, of, you know, we just don't pattern our guns enough. And it's one thing to go check check your choke and a certain shot size or payload, but there's various types of pattern that you can do that you can learn from with guns and and you cover three of them in the book do you want to talk about those for us well yeah i mean the you know the most typical one you hear is you put a target out there of course at 40 yards yep and you try to shoot in the center of it and then you go draw a circle around a 30 inch circle around the densest part of your pattern and that's what people use to determine the choke of their gun like in that circle, I give an example. If you got 70% or more of your pellets in that 30-inch circle, you've got a full choke. And I gave all that information in my first book that, you know, like if you had 10 thousandths of constriction in a 12-gauge, you look up in my book and you know that's an improved cylinder. And you knew 20 thousandths was a modified. And you knew the gauges changed it because it took less constriction in a 20-gauge to get as tight of a choke. And that's why I made those charts. So that's one way to determine your choke. I forgot those. I forgot those charts were in book one, and I actually I've had a, a number of instances where I could have used those recently, Doug. So thanks for the reminder. <laughs> yeah, I've had people call me up and say, "Hey, they're wanting to buy, you know, a 20-gauge." And they're like, "Hey, it just says the choke's point zero zero five in the right barrel, and it's point zero ten in the left barrel. What does this mean?" And I tell them to take my first book, turn to the section on barrels. And at the end of the section, it it gives you graphs for every gauge and every choke. Yeah. And um, so that's very handy. And then I also talked about patterning your shotgun is to figure out if it shoots to the point of aim. Is that synonymous with, like, would you call that regulation? Yes. um, and, And it is. It depends on how your barrels are regulated. Yeah. And I talked about how probably the most popular in the uplands is when you shoot to the center. And I do tell you to aim this time, which we won't use that nasty word anymore with a shotgun. Right. <laughs> that your center target out there, okay, you've got your target out there again. I put a smaller 15-inch circle in the middle of it, and I sh- aim at it at 40 yards right at the center. And if your shotgun, most of them will put 60% of the pattern above the center, 
and 40% below. So you know your gun shoots at 60, 40% pattern. Yeah, yeah. Um, you might say, well, why would I want that? Well, most upland bird guns are rising a little bit when you shoot, okay? Um, I like mine 50-50 because I do a lot of chucker hunting and stuff, which mm-hmm. is shooting downhill. Yeah. A lot of crossing shot on quail and whatnot, and sometimes I'll shoot over the top. There's guys that shoot driven birds all the time over in England and stuff that will take it even more extreme, and they'll have a 70-30 pattern. Yeah. They want that belt-in lead, shooting a little high. You can, yeah, that's you can okay. Imagine, sort of the gun rising up over you and leaning back, like you're you're building in lead with that point of aim. Absolutely. So it, it's very important to shoot the center of that target and see where your gun's shooting. Um, and I talked, I gave an example how I had a friend that his gun was shooting way off to the side. I mean, and. It was a Holland and Holland, and so I told him, I said, somebody messed with your Holland and Holland and opened up the choke and uh, didn't do a good job. And the takeaway there is that, again, that that's one of the things with vintage gun buying, which we'll, we'll get into that, but if somebody gets into a gun, doesn't know what they're, you know, you think it's simple to open it up, open up the choke, but you can actually mess up the point of aim. And those are things like just given the nature of shotguns, like, you don't you don't always have the ability you can't just go shoot it right you can't walk into the gun store and go shoot every gun like you just can't do that so that's why it's kind of like the sort of the the dark art of shotgun buying it really is that you're you know you're buying them sight unseen many times you just seen pictures on the internet nowadays right yeah but i used to always try to buy them in person and i'd look at the muscle muzzles and i would see if they looked really concentric and make sure that the chokes were cut perfectly even and concentric. And I'd look down them with a flash. I mean, just the whole nine yards. Yeah. When you shine a flashlight down, what are you looking for? Just any blemishes and imperfections? Well, I look for the choke section to see how long it is. Okay. What style it looks like it's cut in. And like I said, um, yes, you're looking for, you know, pitting. Um, you can look down the barrels and see if you got lengthened forcing cones. All that great stuff. And like I said, I'm looking at the muzzles, too, to see if it's nice and concentric. And then I'm looking to see if the barrels have been cut, if they you know, touch in the middle, which they, they should in most cases. I know they don't with a lot of the smaller gauges now because, you know, when they're regulating them, it's easier to get them to hit to the center, the point center of aim without the barrels touching at the muzzle. And that's all unregulating, and that's why a lot of these new 28 gauges and stuff won't. But that's all stuff we don't get lucky enough to do, and we're ordering them in through the mail. So if the gun has plenty of choke and you've got a good gunsmith, they can change your point of aim by opening up your choke and test firing it after they take a couple thousands out of it and change your pattern. So it's it's a big deal. As if somebody wanted to go out and test the point of aim, this is the one, like, again, this is the one time where you talk about aim with a shotgun, similar to sighting in a rifle, you know, that's kind of what you're doing. Would there be benefit to, like, you know, use, like, legitimately using a rest on this one to, I mean, I know it's not as precise as a rifle, but you'd be doing no harm if you actually used a rest, right? No, and I do. Okay. Because I actually want to know it's not my fault, but what the gun's doing. Exactly, yeah. And I will. I'll put up a pattern and just throw my gun up and shoot many times and see where it generally seems to want to hit in a quick motion. Um, but I also want to know if it's regulated 
you know, perfectly the way I want it to be too. Yeah. And that former method you mentioned there, that's, that's really the third type of patterning. That's the point of impact testing. And that's really how, where does the gun shoot as it pertains to you, the shooter, as it fits your body? That's more gun fit. That's correct. And that's why I'll use a rest on just regulating my barrels, but not with gun fit. So you made a really good point there. And then another thing I don't do so much nowadays as I did when I was younger, it's kind of a pain, but most of my upland birds, I just want a great pattern. Okay. Um, Because a single pellet doesn't kill your bird. It doesn't need to have tons of velocity. It's not a, it's not a bullet. It's a sphere. Okay. Yeah. So it's all about multiple hits. But when you're hunting something like it's a really tough bird, like a pheasant, and I knew, knew I had to use a smaller shot size than a 20 gauge because large pellets do not pattern good in small bores. And number fives were not patterning good in my 20 gauge at all because I like five shot on pheasants. And I was using a 20 gauge on pheasants. So I was like, I'm going to have to use a six shot because I got them to pattern good. So then I did do a penetration test. And back then, I used to put up phone books. Yeah. And if I was shooting pheasants at 35 yards, I'd shoot that phone book at 35 yards. And it was accurate to penetration to the page. And I definitely found a couple loads that penetrated a lot better. What would be a good number of pages for, if you can even recall, (laughs) at at 35 (laughs) yards or whatever? (laughs) I can't even remember to tell you the honest to God truth. But I'll tell you one thing. I had some of that six shot making it through well you have different sizes of phone books but i'd use a big old fort collins phone book and it was thick and it would make it through half of that thing yeah yeah i recall you writing that in the book that it was i think it was a it might have been a one ounce load of federal number six shot that was kind of like your it was super agreeable in that particular 20 gauge of yours it was it was federal premiums Back then, they had really good copper-plated shot because they used extra hard pellets. They had about 15 microns of copper coating. And, man, these pellets were hard. And they were perfectly round. And it was unbelievable how many more pages it would penetrate because I'd have the same phone book. I'd have stacks of them. And it was unbelievable how much better it would perform. So I said, okay, this was penetrating more, more pages than some of my number five shot anyway. But it was patterning a lot better. I took it, and it was just deadly on pheasants. Yeah. So at that point, you got – that's the interesting thing. I mean, I found this these topics really interesting about – and, I, you know, I've got a lot to learn in, in this. And, like, I just don't have – like, if I could go out in my backyard and shoot, you know, I might do more myself. But I kind of have to rely on, you know, good resources, the Tom Rosters of the world and the Dell Whitmans and people that I talk mm-hmm. to. But – you've got a six shot that is penetrating better than your five shot. And if you think about that, you're able to do that. Then you're, you're going down a shot size. So you're going to increase the number of shot pellets you can fit in that shell. Your pattern density goes up and we often have this bigger, stronger, faster mentality. But Mm -hmm. in this case, you learn through experimentation that you could have a much more effective load by actually going down a shot size. You're correct. And a lot of people, there's a lot of confusion about this because I read Tom Roster's articles too, and it seems like he's kind of pumping up the non-toxic shot lately. And they're talking about shot strings and this and that and how they almost don't exist now because shot's so hard. And we had a famous author, I don't need to, he's super smart, write in and 
and talk about then they were both right in the article okay if you're shooting lead or bismuth shot strings exist and they're real and it's a fact michael mcintosh was right about all of it i've seen the magic i've shot thousands of birds but when people are shooting steel shot and i mean there's even heavier heavy shot that's yeah, yeah. tss is harder yep. harder harder right yep you're not going to get the shot stringing because the pellets aren't deforming. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you do get less shot stringing and you can't use bigger payloads. However, if you jam too much of a payload down any gauge, you're going to get a shot string to some extent. If there's a point of no return. You get more recoil, more chamber pressure. And to give you an example, if it didn't matter, then why don't they get a four inch magnum? that holds two ounces of shot and you put it down a 20 gauge, it would come out of the barrel like long sausage. And, and it, it would feel it, terrible. Shooting. Oh my God. <laughs> and then the pat, and you might say, well, that shot strings only about, you know, five inches going down the barrel, maybe four inches. Well, that becomes exaggerated tremendously when it hits the atmosphere. That's the beginning of it. And so there is a point of no return with a shot string with anything you use. However, it's less of an issue with the really hard stuff, okay? And that is a fact. So both of the gentlemen were actually correct, um, depending on what you're shooting. Yeah, I think I, I kind of wanted to get there, and we'll talk about shot size and payload, and I don't recall exactly what we were talking about, but I know that on the first episode I had you on, we talked about the square load, and at that yep. at that point, sort of in my shot double gun journey understanding of shotguns you know i was you know i liked the idea of the square load and i think like you'll hear a lot of people sort of dispel it at this point and like anything else like it it's not really black and white like there's a lot of nuance and and really i think the understanding the concept of the square load is is a good starting point and then realizing that you can move you know there's a range and there's a tolerance there of like what you can do with payloads and there have been advancements made in shot cup technology and and everything so it's like but if you don't understand the foundational concepts then you're not really going to be able to make informed decisions for yourself i guess is what i'm trying to say yeah exactly and that's why i kind of went into it in both of my books so people would learn a lot more about it. And that's why I went into quality cartridges yeah, and chokes and whatnot again in my second book. A lot of questions about it. Yeah. So, all right. So we covered the three types of patterning and we kind of got into shot size and payload there. And I, I want to talk about that. We sort of jumped in there with the, with the square load and let's, I'll just go over that like briefly and you correct me if I'm wrong here, Doug, but the square load is sort of this, it was, I think it was theorized by the English that, the payload was should be square and that it's about as wide as it is tall so that you're and the, and the main goal of it is to reduce pellet deformation because if your pellets get smushed or squashed as they're coming out of the gun they're going to hit the air and begin being going through that air resistance and they're not going to fly true we would you know in a perfect world we would love to have spherical pellets which you touched on earlier, you can, you can kind of get that with steel and some of these other shots, but in the old days of lead pellets very easily deformed. And so that's what you're trying to minimize. So you don't want to shoot, you don't want to shoot them too hard. You don't want to crush them at the bottom. You don't want them to scrape against the sidewall. And there's all these things that shotgun manufacturers and stuff have done to reduce shot deformation, but shot deformation still can occur. 
And that's where sort of understanding that square load and realizing, you know, how much do you really want to put through a bore? And then, and then there's a whole, the recoil, like, yeah, you can shoot a one ounce load out of a 28 gauge. I have, I've killed sharp tails and grouse with one ounce loads out of a 28 gauge. Did I need that? Probably not. Did I feel it? Probably yes. But it's, we have those options available to us. Right. And, um, you're correct about the square load and, I like square loads on my guns because I don't get to recoil. Yeah. Their performance is excellent. I mean, I love lead. I think it's the best projectile there is for a shotgun. Um, and I talked about that in my book. I talked about how steel obviously doesn't have the energy at distance. They're loading them all in real. Any of them I find are very heavily recoiling loads. They ricochet at close range. They overpenetrate. I mean, it's not the perfect thing. And you do have to have very hard, for the larger shot sizes anyway, very hard gun barrels. And, you know, I think bismuth is a great alternative. It's just too expensive. Yeah, they haven't really got it expensive. affordable yet. Yeah. Yeah. But when they can find a way to add some different metals to it to make it a little bit heavier because it's just slightly lighter than lead. Not a lot, but a little bit. Yeah. And... These companies will start loading it like RST to lower velocities. They won't shatter. They're going to work. It's going to be great. And they got to just find a cheaper, cheaper resource of them. And they will eventually. Then it's going to take the place of lead. So I went over it in my book. And, uh, you know, these vintage guns, we can't shoot everything through them. Right. And we don't want all the vintage guns to disappear out of the field. And all the old timers using them and stuff because that's who supports the wildlife. I mean, that's who's paying their licenses. And, and you know, the, I'm, I'm part of many groups and I put a lot of money into it every year. Yeah. the uh, It's going to be interesting to see, as I'm sure you've heard, you know, the way that the UK and England is, you know, going there. I think they're pretty much mandating steel. And, you know, you're starting to see more, which it, interestingly, you know, it's, it's like we almost have the convenience of sort of being able to watch it from the sidelines over here, but you're starting yeah. to see some people do, you know, really do some serious testing as far as like, you know, what can you get away with shooting steel shot through as it pertains to a vintage gun. And I think, you know, I think some, some of the answers there are that, you know, they, some of those guns can handle some level of steel at, at reasonable velocities and stuff. And we are not being forced, which I think is a good thing that we're not being forced to have to do those experiments, but you know, with anything, more research, more knowledge should help us make better decisions. It'll happen. Cause I know the English have a steel load right now that they're actually putting buffer in the shot mm -hmm. and it's protecting these old barrels and, um, they're loading them with some different powder, burning at some different rates so they can load them to lower velocities. It's retaining the energy better. Interesting. And um, that way they don't have to have such heavy high-velocity loads, which is hard on the gun. And when you stick to smaller shot sizes with more open chokes, it's really not such an issue. Yeah, so circling back to, to payload here, I know that, that you like to shoot essentially square loads you know you like you like to shoot the payload that was sort of designed to shoot out of the gauge and if it works for you you know why why shoot anything else right but right w what i'd like to kind of ask you is you know one thing that that strikes me a little bit is that the 20 gauge is i always thought like seven eighth ounce was sort of the 20 gauge load standard but 
I've seen reference to like a one ounce load being kind of a standard out of a 20 gauge and they're kind of used interchangeably and i know like you know there's not a whole lot of difference between a one ounce and a seven eight ounce load even mcintosh wrote in the in his shotguns and shooting book he wrote you can shoot one ounce as well out of a 20 gauge as you can out of anything else i mean not discounting the fact that as bore size increases so too does pattern efficiency but you can shoot a one ounce load out of a 20 gauge i mean is there do you know like what the standard is for a 20 gauge is it seven eighths or one ounce it's definitely seven eighths okay um the fact that it does so well with one ounce also is because the bore is supposed to be 615 and you're at like 550 for a 28 gauge well most 20 gauges that i'm seeing now are routinely larger 620 625 630 okay very common okay yeah and so that even helps yes it helps that the bore is going to be a little more forgiving because it's larger in general and you're seeing them overboard more and more and so they do fine with one ounce they you get a little bit more recoil which you know if you're using eight shot there's plenty of pellets in a 7 8 ounce load shooting a dove or something. And you're not going to get the recoil. Why would you use anything else? But, man, if you're out there hunting sharp tails or something and you want to have number six shot of there, you're like, hey, I want a one-ounce load. It'll be great. And if it strings just a little bit more, it wouldn't matter. That's going to catch up to that sharp tail anyway because it's a larger bird and the bird's not flying crazy fast. So the difference, you'll never know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And and I guess like my point of diving into all this stuff is again, I think it's I personally think it's helpful to understand concepts like the square load and then the more you learn, you can kind of layer on top of it. You can kind of make your own informed decisions and realize that there is some nuance and there is, you know, like a range of tolerance as far as like what you can do and like you said, you know, if you have an application where you're thinking, "Yeah, I got I want to up the shot sizes, my shots might be further. I want to I want to increase the payload a little bit." You can we've got enough options in the modern ammunition market to get away with that. Oh, absolutely. And that's just kind of fun. I just kind of like the art and science of all of it. Yeah, I do too. (laughs) (laughs) Probably, probably too much in that. Like I spend way too much time thinking about this stuff. Oh, I have too. I've studied ballistics. (laughs) You'd be shocked. The books I got on it and how I've studied it. And it's just like, people are like, why, what is wrong with this guy? Yeah. So I wanted to ask you what, because again, we're like right on the verge of a lot of hunting seasons and just to kind of sort of tie a bow on this shot size and payload section, like what would be your ideal load if you're going to go pheasant hunting? And, you know, like anything else, there's a ton of gray area nuance here. Like was it early season or late season? But just what's your what's your preferred pheasant load if you're going to go out and shoot pheasants tomorrow, Doug? I have never shot a better load that's more versatile in any 12-gauge, any choke then a three and a quarter dram, one and a quarter ounce. I personally like five shot. Okay. But I love that load in six. I love that load in fours. Yeah. The patterns are beautiful. Okay. Plenty of energy and the coverage is just excellent and it's so versatile in almost any gauge. Do you know what the foot per second conversion would be on that dram? level because i never know what those well that one's 1200 feet per second muzzle velocity okay gotcha. okay that that three and a quarter one and a quarter okay now you got to remember americans measure it three feet from the muzzle or supposed to 
The English don't do that, so a lot of their loads look pretty hot. Well, their bays are right at the muzzle, and three feet makes a difference. Yeah. I actually was I was familiar with that concept, actually, and I was trying to find – it was hard for me to find information on – really that spelling out i know there's the there's the sammy standards which is the the u.s and then there's cip which is which is used over in europe and england and and i knew that difference in the muzzle velocity measurement was was there because i was looking at actually some italian ammunition manufacturers and they were giving us muzzle velocity numbers that i knew were they appeared faster than they were. They weren't. They weren't converted. And and then I came across that in your book. And do you know? Is there a way that you could say if it's if it's going this fast at the muzzle? You know, I think it's a math problem, but I just don't know like how much variability there is. Like what what it would convert to if it was you know an American measurement. Usually, it's a, about a hundred feet per second difference. Okay. Okay. Yep. Yeah. That, that's what I was looking for. Just sort of that. Yep. Ballpark number. Okay. Yep, and and it's also in my book. I give the conversion of the shot sizes. Like, yep. um, let's say you're, you're buying an English load, okay? Their number six is an American number seven. Right. And their number seven is an American seven and a half. So I've got that chart in there. Um, and I converted the, you know, the metric measurements for the two and a half inch shells. And, you know, when it says it's 28 grams, you know that's one ounce when you convert it to American. So I put all those charts in there. So really handy because I did recommend some good English loads, and they, they're they good, trust me. Yeah, I, I was familiar with a number of those, the brands that you mentioned. I think I was also familiar with that shot size difference versus, you know, American shot sizes in some of the, the European countries. For the most part, folks shouldn't have to, you know, I don't want them to panic when they go to buy ammo. Like if you go and buy no. If you go and buy Fiocchi's in the U.S., they're not going to be the Italian, you know, they're going to be the U.S. shot size on the box. They are. And the only ones you're going to really probably run into it with, which I do find on the shelf here um, in Colorado, is the game boards. Okay. We, we got you game get, boards. You can get game boards? Oh, yeah. Where do you buy those? Well, we got them at Jack Surplus. And yeah, Secret we Stash. To- <laughs> 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 so I've got some. And, uh, there's some different outfitters, like I know Wesley Richards used to carry their loads, but they were all loaded by Lyovel Express. So there is some floating around, and you just got to be aware of it. Yeah, I've, I've looked around, and, and again, that's just me having too much time on my hands, but I've wanted to wanted to try some of those, so I might have to pick your brain on that at some point. But Okay, so I asked you the question about your ideal pheasant load. All right, let's go rough grouse now. Roughed grouse... I'm a little different than most people on that. Sure. Um, I know most people would say seven and a half. Yeah. And I really couldn't argue it, but I usually shoot eights because rough grouse are pretty easy to kill. Yeah. And they go into shock when you hit them good. And, you know, I usually hunt in October. There's a lot of leaves and stuff up, and the range is really close range shooting. Okay. And I've had great kills with eights. Um, I do not use more than an ounce of shot. You don't need it. You know, at 15 yards, your pattern's so dense, you're going to mutilate them if you uh, dead center them at 15 yards with even a one and eight ounce load, really. And I do think in the woodcock and grouse woods, it's important to have a short shot string because the birds, you get a lot of fast crossing shots and little windows. Yeah. And shooting like that puts a premium on short shot strings. 
I mean, very seldom do you have one pop up and it's just a long going away shot where you're like, it's all going to hit the bird anyway. I usually miss that bird anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Straight away. (laughs) All right, let me ask you this. If you're shooting a 28 gauge in the grouse woods, are you shooting three quarter ounce of eights or are you going to change it up? I'm shooting three quarter ounce of eights. Okay. Correct. A lot of people want to go with a larger shot size with the smaller payload, and that's just not true. You know, the small gauges do not pattern large shot sizes as well. Yeah. And you need more density. You need more pellets. And at short short range, you know, your little 28-gauge loads are fast. I mean, they're at 1,290 feet per second. Yeah, they're not, they're not losing a whole lot of velocity by the time they reach that bird. Not if you're shooting a bird at 15, 20 yards. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, even a long shot in the grouse woods is probably closer than you think it is. Oh, yeah. I always have two people exaggerate these shots, and I had a guy kind of chewing me out that I wasn't giving enough credit to 28 gauges, and he thinks they're good out to 60 yards and whatnot, and I'm like, and putting heavier payloads in it, and I'm like, well, you know, why would you do that? And every time I check somebody out that's doing that, I usually find out that they're really exaggerating the yardage when I count it off and step it off, and why try to make a little gauge do that when you could step up a gauge and step up a payload, that gun is meant, the 28-gauge is meant to be light, fast, really close-range shooting, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. It's not made to be a pheasant buster. Doesn't mean it can't. Yeah. All right, last one on the ideal shot payload quail. We'll say bobwhite quail. All right, now bobwhites, I'm definitely going to say eight shot. Okay. And I don't like any more than seven eighths ounce because it's very close range shooting. They're very thin skill skin. They're easy to kill, and you're going to ruin the meat. Now I'm not going to give you the same story on scaled quail. I'm not going to give you the same story on gambles quail. They're totally tough, different. Tougher to kill. Yeah. You got longer range shooting, and you need to have a seven and a half shot on those birds. Got it. All right. We're going to leave shot sizes and payloads behind at this point, Doug, and we're going to let uh, we're going to let folks dive a little bit deeper into that in the book. And again, charts, resources. You know, you you've got a chart in there where you I've kind of pulled this question from that. You list a bunch of different species of birds and kind of go through sort of like your ideal payload chokes and stuff. I, I did want to talk to you about chokes. And specifically because I've been, I'm getting a couple questions on this recently. Somebody was asking me today about chokes for shooting in the grouse woods. And I know you've got some opinions on this. So let's, let's hear the in general sort of Doug Stewart opinion on choke. How should we be thinking about that for upland game shooting? For upland game shooting in general, people remember you need to have the most open choke that you can get away with. And the smallest shot size with due regard to killing energy okay and you put those two together and it's like magic i mean i shoot a lot with cylinder choke now in the woodcock and grouse cupboards my all-around favorites you know skeet one and two which i put in the book and really i pretty much shoot everything in the uplands with skeet one and two chokes but you know also use it in the grouse woods um, so keep it open. I mean, you don't need any more than a skeet choke in the woodcock and grouse cupboards. Which I think based on based on sort of what I see in here, you know, a lot of people would think would see that and think 
boy, that's crazy. And, you know, I've, I've started to come around to, and again, you know, I'm primarily a rough grouse and woodcock hunter, so I probably can't be open enough. You know, I, I could shoot cylinder, cylinder all year long, probably. And yep. really for the last two years straight, I've shot improved cylinders or skeet improved cylinder. And those are just the two most open chokes in my favorite gun. And I've shot that from, you know, from the North Dakota early season hunt all the way through the late season grouse and done just fine. And I probably would go more open if I could, but what, you know, what would make you, what would make you go put a, put a choke in tighter than skeet? You know, what would make you go to a modified in the uplands? You know, I do shoot some modified in my left barrel on some pheasant hunting in Nebraska. Okay. Okay. Yeah. My thing is, is I really don't take shots over 40 yards. Yeah. First of all, I'm not a great shot over 40 yards. I'm just not. My eyesight's kind of bad past 40 yards. And that's where I start to see people cripple birds. And I like the dog work. We've got, you know, two setters that point. And I'm sorry, if I'm keeping my shots to 40 yards or under, I can do that with an improved cylinder. Right. And I put yeah. good hard shot in there and a good load, and I'll knock them dead at that range with an improved cylinder. But it's not handicapping me. It's not handicapping me on closer shots. And it's given me good coverage on the bird. You know, with a full choke, too many people miss with a full choke because it's too tight. And they're not getting good patterns out of it. Yeah, and that's where I think, you know, especially if you are talking about tight shooting, rough grouse hunting, that kind of thing. I mean, you know, the the handicap and like the the detrimental effect you could have by over choking is going to be significant to the point where you should you should definitely err on the side of being more open. Oh, absolutely. Bill Hahn has taught me this many years ago. Okay. He's a famous uh, gun. Was he a gun dealer? I know the, the Bill Hahnest bird guns, like he had his, his name was on a certain, you know, up and hunting guns. Yes. Ugarthia made him a special bird gun that he had his okay. name on that was choked skeet one and two. Okay. And he was a good shot. People didn't realize this guy was incredible. And that's what he would take to the woodcock and grouse. He would shoot his little Ugarthia skeet one and two chokes with number nine shot. That's all he'd use on woodcock and grouse. And he was yeah. deadly. He had just incredible numbers. And I got to be friends with him and did a lot of dealings with him. And, and I talked about it in my book. He sold me this little open choked gun that I just didn't have faith in because it was so open choked. And he's like, trust me, Doug. You know, we don't need the choke nowadays. Probably had short barrels on it too, didn't it? Yes, and I just, everybody was against that. <laughs> yeah, I want to ask you about barrel length. <laughs> but it worked with my body, okay? But anyway, I yeah. shot that gun better than I've ever shot in my life. I had the best records. I mean, I was deadly for years with that gun. Hundreds of birds I shot. And he was right. And I got confidence in it. And I, I really, I learned a lot from that. I mean, you know, like Michael McIntosh, he loved open chokes. He talked about that too. You know, people are handicapping themselves. I mean, you really don't need any choke at all. I mean, what do yeah. you think they did with the – they were killing pheasants and birds like crazy before they invented choke. And we're talking about with not such good ammunition. Right, yeah. If you think about that, like if you want to you wanna have, your, you know, have your cake and eat it too, like you want to talk about the improvements and everything in modern ammunition on one hand and then you want to, you know, throw a super tight choke in on the other hand, like you got to understand what you're doing there. I just can't get that myth out of people's mind, and it's just something carried over from the old days. And and um, I can sure make a believer out of them when I go shoot 
some handheld trap with them and hand them a gun that they don't know what it's choked with. And I'm like, don't even tell them. Yeah. And get them shooting and coach their shooting and get them smashing them because you teach them how to shoot the gun right. And then you say, oh, yeah, by the way, you were using skeet chokes. And you were hitting those about as far as you could see them and handle them. Yeah. <laughs> kind of on a on a mission to sort of go even more open than I, than I, you know, I've always just kind of shot the most open chokes I have, but I'd like to, yeah, maybe get cylinder, cylinder in, in a gun or two. And man, for the amount of grouse and woodcock hunting I do, I'm sure I'd be just fine shooting that. Oh, you would. I can promise you. Give it yeah. a try. You'll be surprised. I do that with some Damascus hammer guns that I have. And I usually surprise myself and do better. Yeah. Okay, barrel length, we touched on it there a little bit. And this is a funny one because it's definitely barrel length goes in and out of vogue, like short barrels, long barrels. And right now it's all about long barrels, and I'm even guilty of it. You know, I, yep. I like long, longer barrels, and I just – I've got a gun that I'm going to be shooting this fall that's got it's a 20-gauge with 29-inch barrels. And one thing I will say, and this relates to another topic in your book, is that, you know, I've got a 20-gauge with 29-inch barrels. It has – the balance is – right over the hinge pin it's like four inches and a quarter ahead of the trigger which I, i'm saying that because it's something you talked about in your first first book sort of the where the balance point is in relation is it the front of the trigger guard or the or from the trigger doug i can't remember it's from the front trigger position from the front trigger position and, and sort of your benchmark was like was it four inches or like four inches four? maximum okay um, for for like a super good between the hands balance. Correct. I like less. I like them to be three and a quarter to three and a half, like most Parkers are. Okay. And in your topic right there is barrel length does not matter because you don't look at the barrels anyway. You should never know how long your barrels are because you're looking at the bird. But the balance point is what matters. And a lot of people will shoot long barreled guns because they're more barrel heavy and they help their swing. It helps the gun to continue swinging through the bird, which is partially can be a bad thing too, because you, you get used to the gun doing the work and it can be a bad habit that you depend on the gun. Sure. To keep you swinging because you didn't do your job. If you do your job, your gun barrels are going to be swinging as you fire. So you should learn that. To where you can do that with any gun you pick up. But a lot of people don't learn that, and they don't shoot properly, and they need the heavy barrels to keep them going because they don't follow through. They don't keep yeah. swinging like they're supposed to. This was a big thing for Churchill, of course, that had the 25-inch barrels. Yep. He was a great instructor. He was a great straw shot, a famous shooting instructor. And he proved it could be done with 25-inch barrels. It wasn't a big deal. Just the guns were phenomenally balanced, very high quality. That was the real difference. So you need to get a gun balanced to where it works for you. Yeah. I'm a fast guy. I move quick. My responses are quick. And when I get a sluggish gun, it seems to be at odds with me. And I don't take long-range shots anyway, so I don't need a gun that's helping me to really shoot at a long range. So I do better with a gun that has a lower moment of inertia that has a more between-the-hands balance and is fast. And then I don't even know I got it in my hands, and I just move the way I normally do and 
I can get on it with my eyes and pull the trigger and I'm deadly. But man, when I get something that's sluggish and it slows me down, it, it, it makes a difference and I can't shoot good at the rhythm that I like to shoot. Yeah. That's something I've been paying more attention to. And, and I'll just say like the, that where that balance point is, is one of the most influential things as far as like how a gun feels in your hands, you know, and, and it makes sense sort of logically if you think about it, but I like that. Cause it, you know, folks can do this. You can go balance the gun on your, on your index finger, kind of see where that point is and then measure how far that point is from the front trigger. And I got a, I had a couple guns. I tried it where this, this one gun that I have, it's, it's the most between the hands balanced gun of, I, I have at all. And it's that 29 inch barreled one. And I mean, it feels like you don't even know it's there. Like it's just, it has that light feeling like it's kind of floating in your hands and that's a 20 gauge. I've got another 28 gauge that the balance point is like six inches plus in front and it's very barrel heavy and it's just a completely different feeling gun at that point. Yeah. And you know, one guy could argue that, Hey, he likes the fast responsive gun in the woodcock and grouse, but he's going to have a different opinion maybe on his sharp tail than pheasant. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. And I, I went through balance incredibly in my first book and what makes a balance on a shotgun. And if you're a big man, you need a big gun or you'll overpower it. and It'll be too whippy if you have a little toy in your hand. So a lot of it has to do with your structure, your build, how athletic and quick you are. I gave an example of my uncle Mike. He's slow. He's slower than the ace of spades. So he <laughs> needs a heavy, he needs a heavier gun. That's barrel heavy. That'll keep moving on him. And he takes longer shots than I do by the time he gets on it. So he needs that. Um, and that's okay. That works for his body stature. Right, right. Yeah, and I guess that's that's the underlying sort of point here is that I find value, and I think a lot of listeners will, in, in understanding these concepts, you know, and how how the balance point of a gun affects an individual shot. It doesn't mean that if you go measure your, your balance point and it's a certain amount that you got a bad gun, it's just – then you understand that about your gun and you understand what that means when you're swinging. You know, maybe you are going to have more, more momentum and inertia on the front end of your gun and you're going to understand that. Exactly. Yep. You're right. All right, Doug, we're getting close to wrapping up here. I want to talk to you about, there's some great stuff and I'll just kind of, I'll, the end of the book has some really, really good resources, particularly for folks that are interested in vintage guns and side-by-sides of course and if you're you're wanting to know sort of how to buy one where to go you sort of you go through your whole process as far as like what you might do if you saw a gun on the internet and called up give us an overview of how you might go about buying a vintage gun today you know because this market is constantly changing and we we now have access to a ton of information but what we can't do is always walk into a store and pick these things up so talk me through how you might go about buying a vintage side-by-side today doug yeah i have to go to when i want to do that to somebody like vintage doubles kirby hoyt yep kirby hoyt and i'll say i've seen this gun and it looks like the stock dimensions fit me that's huge okay yeah so get the stock dimensions that fit you or that it could be changed to where it could fit you very easily. Like they could bend the stock a little. They can add a pad. Okay, and you can make it work for you. And then I start asking them. I'm like, okay, you know, has the gun, the barrel's been reblacked? I need to know what the minimal barrel wall thickness is. 
does it ring true? Are the ribs tight? Um, I ask about the condition of the bores. I'm like, I want to know if there's any pitting. Obviously, I ask about the choke constrictions, the chamber length, and I got to make sure it's got a good set of barrels. That's the heart of the gun. If the barrels aren't no good, the gun's no good. You can't save it without a good set of barrels. Yeah. Okay. And when they pass my test with everything I want, I'll go through the wood, make sure there's no cracks. I don't want any cracks on the upper lower tang through the wrist. Sure. And that's something that I can't really see on the internet. So I ask them and I ask them about the trigger pulls to dry fire it for me, make sure the triggers are working great. What kind of pulls they have. Cause I can have them fix them and adjust them. And I make sure it's tight on face that there's no wiggle on the hinge pin. And that's a big deal. Cause you know, they may have to rejoin the gun. Yeah. Or I don't want it, you know, that type of thing. And I ask him to put the forearm on, make sure the forearm's tight. And um, I'm really picky. You know, I want perfect screws on it, all of them properly timed and everything. Sure. To know that some knucklehead hasn't been digging around in my gun. Make sure the ejectors work if it has ejectors. And then if it's a vintage gun, I don't want to buy it unless it's in proof. And they sell a lot of guns that aren't. But I'm like, you know... Has it been nitro-proofed? You know, when? And this is why I want to know the bore measurements. This is why I want to know that it hasn't been messed with since it's gone through the proof house. And he knows all about it. You know, if it's nitro-proofed for one-ounce loads with two-and-a-half-inch shells, you can shoot it in it. And you're going to be okay because it's been through, trust me, you couldn't believe what it goes through in the proof house. Yeah, it's it's had for for folks that don't understand if they, if they <laughs> proof it for a for a one ounce load at a you know two and a half inch that means you know they have at the proof house they've shot they've actually shot through that specific gun you know that individual gun they've shot a massive overcharge in that yep. gun right? Yes, and they in, inspect it like you can't imagine, and they make sure nothing has changed in the measurements. There's no cracks or weaknesses. There's no bulges in the barrels. The whole nine yards that they took it, no problem. And so I go through all these things with them, and I have them ring the barrels, you know, off his finger to make sure the ribs are tight. And sure. Only when I'm satisfied do I I purchase it. And that's why I go through a dealer like that with a gun that's made in the late 1800s because. I know that the barrels have probably been be, been reblacked two or three times. Right. I know they've been honed out. A lot of stuff has been through it, and I got to make sure it's got integrity and I can use it. Yeah, that's a different. It's a buying as a bird hunter. Somebody that wants to use a gun is different than than a collector buying. Mm-hmm. Right. And the like, we could make a, the simple distinction in that. The collector is looking for everything untouched, original, original, original. Whereas yes. the bird hunter, the bird hunter might be willing to accept some compromises there because he's wanting a gun that he can use safely and effectively, not something that he's going to flip and turn and sell for money, right? Yeah, and I did. I had a whole chapter on collecting them. Yeah. I had a whole chapter on how to buy a used side by side and get a good safe gun. And resources to go to to purchase them and make sure that they're nitro-proofed. And yeah. if you're buying Damascus barrels, but even old English guns that have steel barrels need to be a nitro-proof. Um, so yeah, I have chapters on that, which is really handy. 
Got it. Yep, that's all there in the books. I'm just looking at my notes here, Doug. Oh, yeah, I did. did, uh, We'll sort of wrap up with a little bit of hunting. You you wrote in the book about how you're kind of lucky in that your wife has sort of taken over, as as I read, your wife's kind of taken over the dog duties. And when you're out there hunting, it's like your wife, she's like your own. She's she's the handler guide. I mean, she's she's training the dogs, running the dogs. Tell me about that. Yeah, you had to. It's already embarrassing. You had to bring that up, didn't you, Nick? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, no, i've gotten it, crap from jerry and everybody but yeah when i go somewhere she's in charge of the dogs i love it she's got the heavy vest on with the remotes they listen only to her she runs them in the field i tag along and i try my best to keep my mouth shut you're just there to to enjoy it and watch I, the whole experience unfold oh it's it's unbelievable so yeah. and she enjoys them and she's good with them and since I hadn't owned dogs my whole life, I didn't know what I was doing, you know. And she's trained them. She's done it all herself. And just like we wrote the book ourselves, we don't have no publisher. She proofread it and her mother did. It's a family thing. We keep everything in the family. We do it ourselves. Yeah. And that brings a lot of joy. And I'm not claiming they're the best dogs in the world because they're not. But they're our dogs and I don't care. They do it our way. We have fun. And nobody can take it away from us the memories we've had it's just incredible yeah no i found that i found that part of the part of the book just uh, enjoyable and that you know clearly after reading two of your books you know you've got the you've got the bug for side by sides and bird hunting and i just thought it was cool that your wife she really enjoyed working with the dogs and that and that was a love of hers and she really took to the hunting aspect that i don't think she she grew up with that did she no and if men could get over their egos, they could get a lot more of the women in the field right. if they'd let them do more with the bird dogs because they love animals, they love the dogs, they have a special touch with them. And maybe they don't enjoy killing and doing too much shooting, but they love the bird dogs and they want to be part of it. And um, I think it's great. Yeah, whether it's a shotgun or a or a bird dog that brings you into it, there's many roads that lead to the same shared passion that you and me and all the listeners have, so... Whatever road brings you there, it's all good by me. Absolutely. And I talked about that in one of my chapters, that one of the best shots I ever shot behind was a kid that had a Winchester 1987. And, you know, that's an old pump with a hammer, and the guy could outshoot me any day. It was unbelievable. So I can't argue a different gun, and I really <laughs> don't care as long as they're in the uplands enjoying their family, the uplands, and, you know, this and that. It's just... uh it's just a great, great tradition that we got to take advantage of while we can. Looking at the book, Doug, there's a couple of like sketches and stuff of there's a setter and there's some stuff in the front and the back covers. Did you draw that? Did your wife draw that? Or is that, did you get that somewhere else? No. So I have a client. She's a young gal. That's an artist. Oh, cool. And I said, I want you to sketch me and I want you to make me a neat hunting scene. Of course, they've got to be double guns. They've got to be setters. <laughs> and I said, I want these neat drawings in my book because not everybody's got them. And then I put a saying, kind of a Doug Stewart quote, before my chapters. And the reason I did that is it, it kind of puts them in a nutshell and makes people think about it and remember it. So I also yeah, yeah. did that to make my book different and memorable. So, yeah, it's a young gal that I, I train that's here in Loveland and... You know, I wanted to use somebody that was my friend, local. Yeah, it adds a little adds a little character to the book, and 
certainly put a smile on my face. So <laughs> there, we, uh, there we have it, Doug. The traditional side by side part two. I enjoyed reading it. I appreciate you sending me a copy of it, and uh, it will find its place up on my bookshelf along with the rest of the books that I love and peruse through. And I got to remember that you've got those resources in there for me. So if I have a question on double guns and side by sides, I got to I got to go grab those charts out of that book. But where can folks go if they want to learn more about it and maybe pick up a copy? Well, if they buy one off my website, which is DougStewartAuthor.com, it has a PayPal. I will personally autograph your book and send it to you, and I may even put a special note card in there. But do me a favor and say, hey, you know, my name's Jan, and I'm buying it for my husband. Can you autograph it to Bill? Because last Christmas, I had a lot of people ordering them, and I was autographing them, and it was wives buying it for husbands and people buying it for other people and i was just autographing it to whoever ordered it from the paypal right yeah sure so let me know and if you want to get it quicker and you don't care about that it is also available on amazon um it is five star rated i've had great reviews on it so far i just uh, can personally when it comes from my house i can autograph it and i do make a few more dollars that's just being honest, you know. Yeah. And I do, I, I appreciate your time a lot, Nick. I mean, you're a good man and, and you've been instrumental, huge to the Uplands and everybody knows it. And you've really gotten a lot of people involved in it. So we all appreciate the work you're doing. Well, that's that's high praise, Doug. And as a fellow contributor to our shared space, man, I, I appreciate what you're doing. And I can attest, you you sent me a little a little thank you card, and you inscribed the book, and uh, it's always a nice touch. So thanks, Doug. I appreciate it, man. All right. Well, God bless you and all you listeners. And I'm looking forward to meeting a lot more wonderful people in the uplands out there. Absolutely, man. I wish you the best of luck in your hunting season and. Let's keep in touch. Let's maybe, uh, when you write part three, you, you give me a call, right? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, hopefully our paths will cross before then. All right. Take care, Nick. All right. See you, buddy. All right. Good night. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Project Upland Podcast. That does it for this episode of the show. A quick reminder that the Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, CZ USA, Garmin, Sage and Breaker, and Dakota 283. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe or follow the show in your podcast app. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. 
Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gun Doggy Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.